Happy Friday, folks. This is the Snakes Cast. I'm Jonathan. I'm Emily. And all right, finally. Do I do I get to do this now, Emily? Finally? Yes. Okay. After a whole week of me telling Jonathan <laughs> to shut up about the philosophical differences between abstraction and representation, finally we are letting him just go. <laughs> So short version, in visual art, when there's something that looks like something you can recognize, that's representational art. When there's something that doesn't look like a specific object other than the painting that happens to be there on the wall, then that's abstract art. And the idea is it's supposed to apply similarly in games. I mean, a checker is just a checker. It's not supposed to be anything. But those spaces on a Monopoly board, those are supposed to represent real estate and streets in Atlantic City that you're buying and doing actual pretend stuff with. And this is where the word abstract comes from. But the name abstract, as in abstract games, tends to wind up meaning something pretty different from that. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, it's, it refers to a genre of game, not so much you know, whether the pieces are supposed to represent something or not, but whether or not the rules of this game are in a particular category of game that appeals to a particular kind of player. Players like to play chess, like to play Connect Four, like to play backgammon, that kind of thing. I find also... When we're talking about an abstract game, because, you know, we've argued about, you know, is Hive abstract because, you know, it's just like the blo- like the little bits, but they've got bugs on it. You could argue that, you know, it moves the way the bug moves in real life. You know, the exactly. grasshopper jumps, the mm-hmm. mosquito sucks your blood and then starts behaving exactly like you, like in real life. <laughs> just like real mosquitoes. But I think that there might be like a sort of subtlety between not like an abstract game not necessarily being just an absence of theme, but also an absence of sort of like plot or story involving the theme you know like a lot of themed games it's not just this is a game about you know like like building a town or like going on quests or like mm-hmm. buying all this real estate there's kind of like a narrative through it you know you're doing these things because of this right and in hive you're playing with these bugs and you could argue that the bugs are represent representing bugs not abstract whatever but like what do the bugs have to do with the game nothing you could easily just have it be colored tiles and having a little thing like a little like index that'll tell you green moves like this red moves like this yellow moves like this you know or you could have something like chess where you have these very uh, heavily abstracted iconic sort of shapes Mm -hmm. they're supposed to represent a knight or a castle or what have Mm -hmm. you and that move in certain iconic ways that aren't really reminiscent of real life but which make it easier to remember the information that's one of the big things that uh, thematic games with a story in them have as an advantage over abstract games Mm -hmm. because they're using all these representations of things that we know from the real world they can have rules that are a lot more complicated and people will understand them and grasp them and remember them because they match with our real life experiences. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, take Dead of Winter, for example. There, If you had to actually remember that every time you move one of your tokens from one place to another, you had to roll a die and this means that it's one third of the way out of the game and that means that it's a third of the way out of the game and it could also uh, have, have be pushed farther out of the game later and this one means that it's removed from the board it could also cause others to get removed from the board. That doesn't make any sense. But it's like, oh, you got wounded. You got frostbite. You got bitten by a zombie, mm-hmm. and now there's a chance you might infect other people. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to retain that information because of the fact that you can apply your real-life experience there. That's, in some ways, one of the biggest advantages that theme has to offer in a game. It's something abstracts don't have. And it's, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why abstract games have to keep fairly simple rules. Yeah, sets. I was about to say that. I mean, we talked a lot about abstracts are good because there's very few bits and bobs, and everything is like almost all the time fully on display in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that is such an advantage for, you know, yeah, things that are not, like, iconic, things that you don't have any sort of, like, attachment to real life, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, 
hive being, you know, bugs or, you know, hexagons of colored dots on it of different colors or different shapes or like sure. whatever abstracty thing you are. Nobody that plays Hive really sort of like always thinks about how the bugs are moving in relation to real life. Like yeah. it's kind of like a neat sort of like, oh yeah, like that's neat. But it's maybe it makes it a little easier to remember mm, how the grasshopper moves, but, but the others much. pretty much totally abstract. Yeah. And it doesn't need to help, you know, mm-hmm. because yeah, you've got what like in five. base Hive five. You've got five things you need to remember. And that's that's not unreasonable. I mean, in chess you've got six. And some of them are weird, like the pawn and hive. They're actually pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And you get other games like Othello and so on that are even simpler. But uh, it's easy to grasp them. You know, you surround things, you flip them. Mm-hmm. I think there's something else about the appeal of abstract games as well. In a thematic game where there's the story going on, you're in there as a character. You have to care about something that's not real. And for certain very grounded sort of people, like people on the Myers-Briggs scale who'd be like an S instead of an N, a sensei mm-hmm. instead of an intuitive, sometimes they have trouble investing in an imaginary world because it's not real. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd rather invest in something that's real. And although these abstract pieces are in some ways farther removed from reality than like zombies or something else like that, because they don't mean anything, at least the zombies simply can imagine being real, it, it means that the focus isn't so much on the imaginary world created by the game and more about the direct conflict between the players who are sitting there playing it. I mean, you and I are the focus. We're the main characters of mm-hmm. this story and the story is we're playing this game. Yeah, the focus is, you can you can see it as kind of like connections, right? Like me connected to you, me mm-hmm. connected to the game and you connected to the game. That's mm-hmm. it. The three, there are three sort of like lines drawn there and you don't need, yeah, you're right. Like that investment in something that isn't real can be like, you know, sometimes you just don't want to. Not everybody's going to want to do that. Not everybody's going to feel comfortable with that. Mm-mm. And uh, I think that one of the reasons why abstract games like chess and checkers and Connect 4 and so on uh, may have a much broader appeal than games like Dead of Winter or King of Tokyo is because of the fact that people who are more grounded, who don't really find it easy to invest in an imaginary world can get into it. Mm -hmm. And also people who are into these sort of fanciful imaginary things can also grasp grasp abstract games without a problem. I think there's also something you said about people that may not be... The the, uh, board games may not appeal to a lot of people because they do still to this day have this reputation of being sort of like, you know, childish. Yeah, there's a stigma there. You know, there's a stigma there. And, And having to kind of like care about like imaginary people doing imaginary stuff feeding their imaginary families you know like farming their imaginary sheep like even if it's like an incredibly complex game sometimes just explaining that to somebody it'll be like oh yeah like farming (laughs) sheep whatever this is for kids whereas like abstract games they're so easy to take seriously for lack of a better word yeah they look really grown up you know you feel like really like you have your your shit together as it were if you're playing you know if you're playing like go or chess or checkers or hive or whatever like you feel like yeah like the battle of wills. People you know? will not generally think of you playing backgammon in your mother's basement, mm-hmm. but they will totally think of you playing Dungeons and Dragons in your yeah, mother's exactly. basement. Yeah, there, exactly. There is a stigma to games that are heavily thematic and and heavily heavy on the storytelling. That you know, and it's it's one of those things that you can convince, you can try and try and try to convince somebody that you know these aren't for kids and this is for everybody, and it's actually really difficult and complicated, and it's like a lot of fun. It can be a real uphill battle, yeah. But you know, sometimes it's easier just to kind of like start small and work your way up like oh yeah like you've played all of these like the the contemporary games too is the thing you know people have this idea that anything that's come out in the past 20 years is going to be like 
like for children so you know abstract games it's like yeah you know these have existed forever you know they've been around for like the entirety of human existence Mm -hmm. there's like there's this this weight behind that and you kind of like your work your way up from things like backgammon and chess and go and send it to more contemporary abstract games and then suddenly it's like oh yeah that game you've been enjoying so much (laughs) haha it came out three years ago you're a contemporary gamer now (laughs) so abstract games are a good way to ease people into like board games period but also into like i think the idea of board games you know another uh, thing i think that uh, is, is a strong appeal there's the feeling of control because in so many non-abstract games there are a ton of elements that are outside your mm-hmm. control and for a lot of people who are into those kinds of games for a lot of chess players a lot of go players um that's perfect information that perfect control over what's going on is a big part of the appeal so even if a game has a theme in it like the bugs in hive Mm -hmm. or the penguins and hey that's my fish um, if if you have complete control over what goes on it's going to appeal to the same players Mm -hmm. and therefore basically kind of belongs in the same category even if the word abstract no longer applies even if it is representational uh, it still applies and still appeals to the same audience. And so if we're going to talk about categorizing in terms of genre as a way of, you know, you have, of having a useful tool, then that's the thing. I mean, that's why we put Hey, That's My Fish with the abstract games, even though it's about penguins eating fish. And global warming. Exactly. And the ice flow melting. Yeah, right. You know? It's, it's, it's not, it, it is an abstract game in every other sense. You know, it's pieces that you can see completely and pure brain against brain with no dice, no cards, nothing random. And similarly, games like poker, for example. I mean, poker, there's nothing in there at all that represents anything real. What's a, what's a spade? A shovel? No, it's not about shovels. It's hearts, diamonds, clubs. I mean, clubs in the shape of clovers. Kings, like, queens, oh. jacks. These have nothing to do with what goes on in the game of poker or bridge or rummy or anything else. These are all completely abstract games. But we don't think of them as abstract games because they don't have the same appeal. Because that information is hidden, they don't really belong in the same category, even though they are, in an artistic sense, completely abstract. Mm-hmm. And that's it for this episode of the Snakes Cast. I hope you enjoyed me letting Jonathan ramble on about stuff. Oh, God, that was hard. Finally. Okay, all right, okay. Uh, you can get in touch with us at uh, podcast at snakesandlattes.com to say hi, let us know what other topics you'd like to do, that sort of thing. The Snakes Cast is produced by Dax Audio and music is provided by Ben Sound. We're going to have a week's break at this point. Ron had a tornado warning in the middle of our last recording session, and so we only managed to record a single week of content, and we couldn't get everyone together before next week to continue. We're fine, though. I mean, like, it was super windy, and we were, like, kind of excited. Most anticlimactic tornado warning of all yeah, like, time. It, it, like, barely rained. It's like, there was a tornado warning, we were like, oh my god, and it rained for, like, another 20 minutes, and we then were it was scared. I took a cab home, because I was worried about yeah. getting hit in the head with falling trees and stuff. Therefore, tune in in two weeks, when we're going to start talking about board games based on the works of H.P. Lovecraft. The opinions expressed on the Snakes cast are those of the presenters and our guests, and nobody else's. See you the week after next. Bye. Bye.